everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Gary Anderson, who teaches at the University of Notre Dame. Here to talk about his new book, Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, published in 2013 by Yale University Press. Gary, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to uh, be on your program. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Gary, how did you get interested in charity? It seems like this book is related in certain ways to your earlier book on sin. Is that right? That's uh, exactly correct. In my book on sin, which was prompted by the fact that texts in uh, what we call Second Temple Judaism, that is uh, the Judaism between the close of the Bible and the arrival of the rabbinic period, or the New Testament, if we're speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, that in texts from that period we can see a distinctive revolution, we might want to say, in Hebrew language and Jewish thought, and that's the uh, understanding of sin as a debt that uh, one owes to God. In the course of researching that book, I noticed that at the very same time this imagery for debt was surfacing in Jewish texts, uh, the correlative notion of virtuous activity as a credit that was recorded in heaven also appeared. And I, I thought this can't be by accident. I wasn't able to do justice to the richness of this material in the book on sin. Uh, so I decided to write a separate book on the subject of charity, tracing the evolution of that line of thought. So what aspects of charity do we um, sort of misunderstand that made you made you want to write the book? So I think in modern um, culture, persons understand charitable activities primarily on what I would call uh, the horizontal uh, level or at a horizontal plane, as though the only players in a charitable act are the individual who acts charitably uh, and the recipient. And as a result, the major interests that drive scholarship on this question are issues of the subjective uh, demeanor of the donor. So we have an extraordinary interest, for example, in altruism, uh, but also the effect of the gift, uh, and that would uh, express itself in concerns for social justice. Now, both of those elements, of course, are very important, and I wouldn't want to downplay either of them in terms of evaluating the charitable act, uh, but uh, neither of them really address the concern that most interested ancient Jews and Christians about charity, uh, and that was the relate the way in which the charitable act was also a sacramental act, an act of worship or devotion to God. Uh, and it's that dimension of charitable experience, I think, that's fallen out of popular imagination. Right, we'll get to that. Uh, did you have a specific audience in mind for the book? Uh, you know, it's certainly a scholarly book, but it does seem like it has implications for uh, people of faith today. Yes, I think I wrote the book for anyone who has uh, an interest in the interpretation of the Bible uh, and the legacy it's left on Judaism and Christianity. So it makes an original contribution to the field of biblical studies. So I certainly hope that I was persuasive to uh, my colleagues in the biblical guild, so to speak. Uh, but I wrote the book at a much more general level, hoping that you know anyone who is interested in the subject of charity and its biblical origins uh, might be illumined uh, by the narrative uh, I wrote. So let me ask you about your approach to biblical studies. Um, 
we had uh, David Lambert on a couple weeks ago, uh, and he was saying that his approach is, you know, to look more at readers and interpreters rather than authors. Uh, it seems to me that that's an approach that you've certainly taken in your career. Is that right? Uh, that is accurate. Very accurate. Uh, actually, I know David Lambert uh, quite well. We were both students of the same teacher, uh, Professor James Kugel, when he was at Harvard University. Um, but I think, like David Lambert, it wouldn't be accurate to say that we're only interested in what is called the reception of the biblical text among its early readers. Uh, we're both interested also in the creation of the biblical text by its authors, and particularly what is the relationship between a text as it's uh, conceived by its author and then how it's received subsequently uh, within a uh, religious tradition. Okay, so let's let's get to the heart of the matter. Um, you, you touched on this, but you say in the book that your approach, uh, rather than being socio-historical, is theological. Your focus is theological. Uh, what do you mean by that? And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about what the heavenly treasury is. So uh, with respect to this book, I think what I mean is how did the uh, individuals who are writing about the charitable deed, how did they think about it? I think what you'll find typically when you look at scholarship on charity in the Bible and early Judaism and Christianity is the charitable actions are uh, viewed through the lens of modern concerns, particularly those of altruism and social justice. Uh, what is frequently fil filtered out and lost is the deeply, you know, sacramental devotional side of charitable actions uh, that animate, I think, uh, Jewish and Christian writers in this period and make charity such a distinctive virtue uh, within uh, the religious world of ancient Judaism and in Christianity. I guess if I was to say the most surprising thing I found in writing this book and uh, something I say still has, you know, has a deep effect on on me simply as a human being is was the realization that charity wasn't simply uh, the outgrowth uh, of religious faith or religious belief, but it was actually its instantiation. It was, in some senses, uh, the very essence of it. Uh, and I think that's a distinctive marker in both Jewish and Christian texts from this period and is frequently lost by modern readers. What text uh, do you look at? Um, you know, Proverbs and Matthew, I think, might be uh, sort of well-known to people. Lesser-known might be uh, Tobit and Sirach. Is that how you say that? Yes, Ben Sirach. Well, what was, this is uh, very much uh, under the influence of my teacher, Jim Kugel, uh, who was interested in tracing how biblical notions made it eventually into both the rabbinic corpus and into the New Testament and early Christian writings. And uh, what one has to be aware of, and I learned this uh, very well from Professor Kugel, is how these biblical notions were shaped and transmitted in what scholars call the Second Temple period. And uh, during this period, we have a number of books that were written that didn't find their way into the Jewish canon. They did find their way, many of them, into the Catholic canon, but not all of them. Uh, two of them in particular would be uh, Ben Sirah and Tobit. They're both Jewish books. In fact, Ben Sirah, Ben Sirah is a little bit complicated. It goes under a number of different titles, Ben Sirah, Sirach, or sometimes Ecclesiasticus. It actually has left a larger footprint within Jewish tradition than uh, many contemporary Jews realize. It is the most commonly quoted, for example, 
non-biblical book in the Talmudic corpus. It's referred to by chapter and verse there on occasion, uh, a curious detail that most people aren't aware of. And then our best copies of this book, uh, that is uh, in its Hebrew original, were found in the famous Cairo Geniza, uh, a Geniza that was kept in uh, Cairo, Egypt during the medieval period that's now located in Cambridge, England, and the Jewish Theological Seminary. I'm sure as many of your uh, listeners will know, a Geniza is where uh, religious Jews stored texts uh, that had the divine name written on it uh, and in, in order not to desecrate the name. But frequently in the in Genizas of this sort, all kinds of other texts found their way uh, into them as well. And we have a number of manuscripts of Ben Sira uh, in the Cairo Geniza, which reflects that uh, or certainly shows us how important this text was to medieval Jews uh, in Egypt. Right. And, and so what was uh, Ben Sira's uh, interest in charity? What, why was he particularly fascinated by that topic? He had a lot of interests in charity. I think he was interested in how one's relationship to money uh, was related to one's uh, relationship to God. I think for Ben Sira, uh, money could be both a sign of blessing from God, in accord with the book of Deuteronomy, but money was also a source of great temptation to the individual who possessed great amounts of it. Ben Sira thought that the person who was very wealthy uh, would be inclined toward the view that, you know, they w- were in control of their lives. They could do whatever they wished and uh, were somehow independent of God's providential control and design of human nature and human history. So, uh, ben Sira has a kind of paradoxical attitude towards wealth. It's both a sign of divine blessing, but also potentially the cause of humanity's fall. Uh, so what he prescribed is the way for the rich person to um, deal with the challenge that money would present for uh, his piety was to give it away to the poor, that this was a form of not simply ameliorating uh, social injustices, it was that, uh, but also represented a form of religious devotion to one's God. One of the um, verses that really sticks with me is um, Proverbs 19.17, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. What about this idea sort of makes people uncomfortable, Um, the idea that there's possibly self-interest involved? The self-interest aspect, that goes back to the question of altruism I mentioned earlier. The reason why self-interest, I think, becomes such a problematic category among modern readers of this material is that they miss what I would say is the larger metaphysical uh, picture of the universe into which charity fits. One has to be aware that for ancient Jews and ancient Christians, uh, they deeply believe that not only did God create the world, but God created the world in a way that fits God's character. As God is a lover, loving and generous being, so he designed the world and governs the world such that it proceeds uh, in accord with those very characteristics. So if that's the case, if the world is to be imagined that way, then if you act in a way in accordance with God's character, you should be rewarded for it. So the purpose of the reward in many of these texts is not so much to generate the reason for why I ought to be uh, charitable in the first place. Uh, That's the mistake I think modern readers make. But rather, it's a testimony to the character of the world that God had created. So 
that's again an emphasis on the theological, we might want to say, over against the sociological. I think the ancient readers uh, were fascinated and deeply committed to this reward dimension, uh, not because they thought human beings needed that in order to give, but because it was a testimony to the type of world God had made. Maybe you could tell us briefly about uh, deliverance from death, which appears in chapter 5. Um, you touch on the stories of Abraham, Jacob, and Tobit and their sons. Uh, what's going on there? So we have uh, a very important verse in Proverbs as well. Uh, in fact, you'll find this verse frequently on Sadaka boxes in synagogues from uh, Proverbs 10. Uh, it reads, material you know, goods will provide you. No benefit, but charity, tzedakah, will deliver you from death, tatzil mimavit, uh, in Hebrew. Um, this particular verse left a huge uh, footprint, again, in Jewish and Christian thought. But what's interesting is the way in which this concept of deliverance from death evolves over time. When we're looking at the Bible, of course, and uh, here I'm going to fold Tobit into that category, uh, making a nod perhaps to my own Catholic background, but Tobit uh, operates under the framework of the Hebrew Bible generally. That is, the book of Tobit doesn't uh, have in mind a notion of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, so the question would be, how does a writer uh, like the writer of Tobit, understand a verse in which charity is thought to deliver someone from death. What does that mean? Uh, well, here the the phrase means exactly what it means, for example, in the Joseph story and elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. It means uh, that a person is saved from some terrible calamity uh, that uh, imminently is, uh, uh, oppresses them. Uh, it could be old age, childlessness, uh, slavery, as in the case of Joseph, or what have you. Uh, and that's precisely how it's understood in the book of Tobit. Tobit himself is delivered from his blindness. He's delivered from his fear that his son, he'll lose his son, or his son will never marry, he'll never have grandchildren, or he'll die a pauper. At the end of the book of Tobit, all of these things are restored to him. His eyesight, his son, his son has children and grandchildren who he's able to enjoy at the end of his life, and he has wealth beyond all measure. So clearly his charitable actions, according to the author of this book, have delivered him from death. Uh, when we move to the Talmud in the New Testament, of course, once we have the idea of the resurrection of the dead in place, uh, this notion uh, attracts a new level of meaning, and that is that uh, almsgiving actually is your key uh, to what well, at least Catholics would call the beatific vision, the uh, possibility of enjoying uh, the sight of God, uh, the vision of God, uh, the ziv panav, I guess to use the phrase from rabbinic uh, parlance, to enjoy the vision of the Shekhinah in the hereafter. Um, it builds on what we see in Second Temple Judaism, but of course goes slightly beyond. And it has huge impact on medieval Jewish communities and the importance of uh, making charitable donations in order to assure one's uh, proper passage uh, to the world to come. We, we touched, so you, you just mentioned the idea um, of almsgiving sort of on behalf of the deceased. Um, where does the idea that almsgiving is equal to all the other commandments come from, and why is it so powerful? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't know if I could fully answer that. We see it already, as I mentioned in my book, uh, in the book of Tobit, where um, Tobit is frequently uh, depicted teaching his sons or being taught the commandments uh, by an angel, in this case, Raphael. 
Uh, and he mentions many of the commandments one would find in the Torah. Uh, but the commandment that gets emphasis above all others is the commandment to uh, serve the poor. Uh, and then one will find this same notion, of course, in uh, Talmudic literature, where we actually have in Tosefta the claim that um, uh, almsgiving, tzedakah, is equal in weight, equal in value to keeping all the other commandments, or the very peculiar feature of rabbinic Hebrew in which the term mitzvah, ha-mitzvah, the mitzvah, uh, can mean not simply any mitzvah, but specifically uh, the mitzvah of helping the poor. It is the mitzvah with a capital T, a capital M. Um, where this comes from, I mean, this, I think, is part of the biblical heritage of the interest in the poor, which one can find already uh, in the book of Exodus. Um, but, you know, I, 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 it's something of a surprise, the way in which it surfaces in Second Temple Judaism uh, with the centrality and, um, you know, uh, uh, just absolute importance it receives. Uh, you touched on this, but maybe you can just um, just to follow up. What happens after after the destruction of the temple? Um, how does charity uh, get rethought? Um, and, and you say it, it replaces sacrifice? Well, many, if you look at many handbooks on rabbinic Judaism, uh, they'll quote a famous story about, uh, uh, you know, a rabbi who is uh, taken out of the burning city of Jerusalem. Uh, and when faced with the fact that there is no temple and it would seem uh, that Judaism as a religion is going to come to an end, he cites a very famous verse from Hosea chapter 6 uh, that God says he desires uh, not simply sacrifice, but uh, uh, what will later be known in rabbinic tradition as gimilut chasadim, acts of mercy uh, toward the poor. I think many people imagine that statement, which one finds in the Avot de Rabbi Natan, uh, as a rabbinic innovation. But what I tried to show in my book is that that notion precedes uh, the fall of the temple. One can find that notion already, for example, in Ben Sira, a second temple Jew who lives in Jerusalem and actually goes to the temple. So already, uh, even when the temple was standing, there was a notion that charitable a actions had the same prestige, the same value uh, in the eyes of God uh, that making a sacrifice at the altar did. So what, what happens is that once the temple is destroyed, this becomes, you know, the uh, we might say the most prestigious cultic, meaning liturgical act one could perform. Uh, but that innovation in rabbinic Talmudic piety uh, isn't, you know, doesn't come out of nowhere. We can already find that idea uh, entrenched in Second Temple Jewish sources. And in fact, it's already there in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible made by Jews in Alexandria, uh, 300 years before the birth of Christ. Um, maybe you could tell us briefly about Augustine and his mother. Uh, I found that story sort of powerful as a way of summing up your discussion. Yeah, I think that many people, um, certainly on the Christian side of the aisle, I don't know if the worries are as um, uh, deep, you know, deeply troubling among uh, contemporary uh, Jews within the synagogue, but are, are bothered by the notion of uh, meritorious religious actions. That is, uh, an individual through the virtuous deeds of piety that they perform over the course of their lives would have some purchase on uh, on God, as though God would owe them uh, X, Y, or Z. I think what's really profound uh, uh, when Augustine comes to 
the funeral of his mother is we see the way in which this idea of meritorious actions are deployed, at least on the Christian side of the aisle, uh, within a specific religious life. So Augustine realizes that his mother has been a deeply pious and charitable person, uh, and he hopes that uh, when God weighs her soul in the world to come, that he will take uh, those actions into into consideration as he uh, makes his judgment about her person. Uh, but what's interesting, Augustine. So Augustine realizes there are virtuous actions to her behave to to her person, but he also realizes, by the same token, uh, that God is free uh, ultimately in the end to evaluate those actions according to uh, his own uh, scruples and his own righteousness. So. The meritorious actions, though they're real and important, they don't um, they don't constrict the freedom of God the way in which many persons imagine. Another element of that story that's actually quite powerful, I didn't realize until I read Peter Brown's uh, uh, account of the same, is the only reason we know uh, the name of Augustine's mother is from precisely that little episode. And the reason why, and I think maybe Jewish uh, uh, readers would appreciate this perhaps more than Christian readers. Uh, the reason why that's so important is that Augustine is hoping that people will pray for her and use her name, uh, invoke her name when they pray. So we know her name specifically because of Augustine's concerns uh, that his mother be escorted safely uh, to the world to come. And uh, I found that, you know, a very touching uh, element of his narrative. Gary, before I let you go, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts um, as a professor of Catholic theology with a, an expertise in Bible uh, on Jewish studies uh, as a field. Well, I, I think Jewish studies, you know, uh, uh, just as Catholic studies has uh, a similar tension uh, behind it. That is, our interests in reading these texts is to be fair uh, both to the historical uh, situation that led to their composition, but also fair to the historical circumstances that led to their reading uh, and rereading. And sometimes describing those uh, original historical circumstances leads us to see the texts in ways that, you know, st- sometimes stand in tension uh, with the way in which those ideas are utilized by uh, present uh, Jewish and Christian uh, communities. So I think both within contemporary uh, Jewish studies as an academic discipline, uh, as in Catholic studies, uh, the scholar faces a kind of twofold responsibility. Uh, on the one hand, to be honest and truthful about what the original sources want to say on their own behalf, and also how those sources can still be utilized uh, in a fair uh, and judicious way by, you know, modern adherence to those two uh, traditions. Well, Gary, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Uh, My next project actually is somewhat different. I'm very interested in uh, what biblical scholars call the tabernacle narrative, the story of the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 uh, through uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 10. Um, These are chapters, I think, for modern readers, both uh, Jewish and Christian that are tough going. I know when I talk to many of my Jewish friends, uh, these are tough times to go to synagogue and hear these read. Uh, the description of the tabernacle seems to ha- be devoid of all religious value. I hope to show in my book that actually these chapters have uh, considerable theological value, but I realize uh, this is going to be an uphill task.
<laughs> Gary, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. The book is Charity, The Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, published in 2013 by Yale University Press. The author is Gary Anderson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.